0: Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got an author of multiple books with me, Mr. Ben Wan. Ben, in particular, has written a book on strategy execution called Getting Shit Done. And that's primarily what we're going to talk about today. But Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm excited to share some of the knowledge that I've found by writing the book and uh, with your audience and to see what happens. Indeed. So Ben, tell us a little bit
0: about you and your background.
1: Sure, sure, sure. So I'm a bit of an odd case where I've been in manufacturing on the accounting side for the last 10 years. I've worked in all sorts of different organizations, good, bad, big, small. And throughout that time, I've racked up a good deal of education credentials. There's more letters after my name than in my last name. So I have a CPA, a CMA, CSCA, MBA, and a PMP. So I don't think there's anything else for me to do now except get a doctorate.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And it wasn't too difficult when there's only four letters in your last name to get more letters after it.
1: The bar is sure set low.
0: Yeah. So and that's an interesting bunch of qualifications and CPA. So like most of our audience, you've got a finance background. Mm-hmm. The PMP one's an interesting one for me. That that says you're you're deeply skilled in project management.
1: Yes. I've noticed there's you see all the articles about how the industry's changing and technologies come in into play. And when you look around, people are wondering who's gonna do this, who okay, who's gonna implement these technologies and change the processes and elevate the status of accountants? Really there is no one. You have to step up and kind of fill that role yourself within accounting organizations. So I guess started with a few small projects, really enjoyed it and kept going. So uh I'm a official project manager as well as an accountant.
0: Yeah, I wonder for- if the Maybe as a CFO, you're possibly delegating that project manager role, but certainly as a a CFO, you'd be doing a program manager role. That's that level above. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. If you think of it, really, everything in life's a project. Work, everything has a, here's what needs to happen, and do we have the resources, the skills, the, the framework to make it happen and to put pieces into place. So even it might seem odd, but the the project management piece just blends in so well in everything I do.
0: So Ben, you've written several books, not just the one we're going to talk about today. So what subjects have you tackled?
1: Sure. So the first book, as you mentioned, is on the strategy execution gap. I've also written one for younger students explaining what the field of management accounting looks like today. It's very different than 10 or 20 years. So you need different skills aptitudes, technologies. So I wrote that book to help people get ready. And I understand, is management accounting the right career for me, or should I go the public accounting route, tax, or audit? So that's kind of the book I wish I had when I was in school. So that's what Yeah, idea. that
0: would have been a useful one for me. I think I found out about all that management accounting stuff after the event.
1: Yeah, and then I've written a few others. One of my favorites is called You Should Go to a Timeshare Presentation. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But what I did is my wife and I went to a timeshare presentation and we observed them using all the different tactics out there to try and get our money from us. So after we got back, I read uh, Robert Childani's book, Persuasion, and I realized that they were using everything in this book on us. So what I did is I documented our experience and I shared throughout the journey how readers can learn to identify and counter these behaviors so they don't take your money and you get the free gift that was
0: promised. Yeah, I, I must admit, I've, I've done that one. We were offered a a week's vacation in Spain, staying at the timeshare resort, in exchange for turning up at the half day timeshare presentation. And oh yes, there were some real lessons in real pressure salesmanship in there.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I thought that would that would be a fun story, and and for me, it kind of fits my style where. I want to write about business topics and to share the knowledge, but I don't want to make it dry. A lot of business reading you find is about as interesting as a brown paper bag, right? It puts you to sleep. So uh, I write absolutely. in a way where it's engaging and you want to turn the page and you, you don't hate it. So that's my goal.
0: The book we're going to talk about, I must admit, I've got on my Kindle at the moment about halfway through it. And it's, it's a really good read. And the book before that that I, I read was actually a business book, but it was written in the style of a novel. It was a a story about a business to business sale being done, mm-hmm. and it took you all the way through. and The characters were in there, and uh, the the hero the heroine of the book had a dreadful line manager, a senior salesman of a very old school, and you could see by taking that character to an extreme. All the things that you shouldn't have in B two B sales these days, and yeah, it took you through a well a fictional transaction right from the the initial prospect coming along right through the completion of the deal, and it was fantastic the way it taught lessons through through just telling a story.
1: Yeah, a good friend and mentor of mine said you need to do two things when you write: you need to inform and entertain, but you really need to entertain first.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: If you're not paying attention, you're not going to get them through the book.
0: Yeah. So, Ben, the book that we're going to talk about, and I love the title. It's one that's that's going to really make it uh, fall off the bookshelf and into your basket in in whichever bookstore you're in. Getting Shit Done. But that, to me, doesn't feel like the title for a strategy book. Tell me more.
1: I put a lot of thought into the title, because a lot of times when people think about strategy, they think of a real uh high, you know, executive, white-glove affair. But really, executing strategy is where you get down in the mud and you get dirty, you get grimy. So you need to get away from the theory and fight, figure out what works. You need to be focused to get shit done. You can't use buzzwords to indicate what you want to do. It's, can you get it done? Do it. So I wanted to make it really... Uh, Strike through is a practical book, not more theory, something that's actionable and you can use in your organization, your personal life. And uh, I don't like boring, so there we go.
0: A lot of organizations will give you a nice mission statement, a vision statement, might give you three or four strategic objectives and round it all up into a a glossy three or four page document and uh, great. An awful lot of time and effort went into it and a lot of meetings and so on, but that three or four page document doesn't actually deliver the end product in two, three years time. We want to grow from 5 million to 10 million. Well, okay, great. We want to do this for our customers. Great. We want to be recognized for this. Great. How are you actually going to do it? And I think that there's sort of tagline that follows getting shit done of the no nonsense framework for closing the strategy execution gap. I think, that says it, really.
1: Yeah. Like like you mentioned, when organizations get together and they go in these off-site retreats to design strategy or something else that's supposed to be strategy, really, there is no, okay, what comes next? So the first chapter of the book, I tackled the strategy question right away to help people understand, is what you have in that binder or this, this document a real strategy? If you don't have a real strategy in place, well, step one is kind of failed, right? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I can, you would think that most organizations would actually have a decent strategy, but I can think back to my PwC days. So I used to be in the team that that tend to implement balanced scorecards and dashboards and things like that. And you find a client who wanted a nice scorecard and you'd go in and start running the first workshop and say, okay, right. Strategic objectives. What are they? What are we going to measure around those objectives? And then you'd suddenly, 20 minutes later, you still had a blank piece of paper where the strategic objective should be, because they didn't actually have any.
1: Not surprising. In my research for this book, I came across that so often. There was a great book from, I think, written in 1993. It talked about the same problems we face today, where you know organizations put together binders sometimes of what they call strategy. But when you flip through it, there's nothing in there. It's the history of the organization, why the organization is so great. It's not talking about what the strategy is. Why that's the right for us and how we're going to make it happen.
0: So there's three interesting things there. Give me those three in a little bit more detail, Ben.
1: Sure. So (laughs) to have a strategy, you have to have certain criteria that you're going to meet. What those are is that your strategy has a long-term focus. It's something that your organization is well suited to do. You have a core competency or core capability that your competitors don't have. And together, you know, so you have your core competency, you have a long-term view, and you have a strategy on what you want to do over the next few years. And when you have those two pieces, the strategy and the, the core competency, they kind of form something called a fit. And that is where you start to put together the synergies that make a strategy practical in the first place. I think a lot of organizations, right, they'll develop a strategy, but they might be missing that core capability piece. Which is critical. You can't build that overnight. Or an organization is really good at operations, but they only have a short-term view. Again, that's not a strategy. To have a strategy, you really need to demonstrate fit and be, to be able to articulate it.
0: Yeah. Fit, a very important thing.
1: And as well, it's a strategy is deciding what your priorities are and what you're going to say no to. If you go into organizations, right, you, you see so many different projects and initiatives. That's not strategy. The strategy is the one thing that really matters. Um, everything else should come second or third to strategy.
0: I've walked into many organizations and management consultants where they've been overloaded with initiatives. I remember sorting out the, the IT function in a, a fire and rescue service in the UK, and they had about 20 major projects running. And one of the things that I was asked to do was to go and review the business case for each of those projects. First question, how does this align with strategy? (laughs) Most of the time, the project manager couldn't answer the question.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, it's a lot more common than people realize. Uh, I've been working in different organizations for manufacturing organizations for about 10 years now. And I don't recall ever seeing or hearing a cohesive strategy. In the last organization, the executives worked on it, put in a binder, put in the shelf. And that was the last of that. So practically
0: then, we've got the strategy execution gap. We've got this thing in a binder. Mm-hmm. How do we actually turn it into reality? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's a challenging puzzle. And for me, in writing this book, what I did is I broke it down into questions. Okay, So why do we have a strategy and why is it not coming to reality? And the questions that I came up with are, okay, Report questions are who is going to do the work? What work needs to be done? And when will the work be done? So who will do what and by when? Oftentimes, you know, you get a strategy, you kind of throw it at your people and they, they're so unprepared. And there's such a disconnect between milestones, resources, you name it. And that's, that's what I see as the, the critical piece. And then I continued to think about this. I I realized there's more questions that we needed to investigate and kind of answer so we could start to close this gap. You want to understand who owns the problem and who owns the solution. We want to understand why the work hasn't been getting done. We want to understand why the work in the organization has not been getting done on time. And then as you go further, you look at people who are running the organization. Do they understand what the strategy is, and how what they do day to day ties into the organization achieving its objectives. And then as I went further through, I think there's a big leadership piece where you need people who can see the high level, the low level, and in between. And you really need people who are thinking, learning, and executing like leaders. A lot of times you have managers, but you don't have people who understand the big picture and help connect the dots.
0: And this is it. It's, it's coming down to that phrase you've already mentioned. Who does what and by when?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think if you have any one of those pieces missing, you have two and not one that things fall through the, through the gaps, right? Um, people. So for example, you define who has to do what, but not by when they're going to make an assumption, right? (laughs) Unless they ask for clarity, both sides are going to kind of be lost. You know, you might think in your head, this is next week, but next the other person thinks this needs to be done by next month. So those are the pieces that need to kind of be in place for each of the milestones to keep this thing on track and moving.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's just think of the practicalities of what you're doing. What One of the things that I'd do if I was working with a client and saying, okay, we've worked through these four or five strategic objectives that you've got. Now, Let's start to build a route map. What do you have to do in year one? What do you have to do in year two? What do you have to do in year three? Mm-hmm. That'd be the sort of approach you'd take here.
1: Yeah. Yes. You have to, you have to connect the pieces. Um, you need to have a, some sort of format for saying, instead of, okay, what comes next? You're going to say, this is step one? This is step two. This is step three. You own step one. I want it done by this date. And yeah. So you, I want this step done by this date. And here's what's going to look like when it's done, and then it's going to go to step two. So you you connect those pieces, you make it granular, and you also make it so you can track and communicate what's happening. And as certain things bog down, for example, you can put resources to make sure it gets back on track. I think leadership executives need to do a better job, especially of monitoring the progress of the strategy execution. They too sometimes assume it's it's well on its way. Now they don't ask questions. And assumptions are the worst. The worst thing that can happen to your strategy. You know, you assume people know who has to do what and by when, and then you start asking questions a month or two or three later, and you're surprised. You see a lot of uh, really blank stares looking at you.
0: And I suppose that by when is the tricky one because mm-hmm. getting the strategy done really is, as we said earlier, you're in the mud and you're getting stuff done. It's day-to-day activities, but there's the business-as-usual day-to-day activities for most folk, as well as the business improvement or business change day-to-day activities. And I suppose it's down to where does your time end up getting spent? Business-as-usual or business change?
1: Yeah, that's one of the challenges, right? If you only have so much time, how do you prioritize that time and, and decide what what's the best way to make use of it? One of my chapters... I have an entire chapter called why does shit not get done on time that kind of explores the breakdowns that occur and then offers a few suggestions to people. say, so, OK, here's how I can start getting rid of some of the low value activities to make room for the higher value stuff. I think a lot of people get bogged down and the stuff doesn't really move the needle. And then they just they want to sometimes help the strategy um, move forward. But there's only enough time in the day.
0: It's something we talk about all the way through Grow CFO and our future CFO program. We start talking about, well, you know, you've all got the same 168 hours in a week. You complain you haven't got time to do this stuff to get you to the next level. Well, first thing you've got to do is work out what you're not going to do to free up some of those 168 hours. So I like that idea of prioritization. What, what sort of exercises would you encourage people to go through to, to drop that stuff that they shouldn't be doing? I think one of
1: the keys is definitely delegation, right? That's not a new idea, but people just have sometimes hard time giving tasks to their teammates. that They think they can do it better or to get too bogged down in the details. If you're an executive or a director, so understanding, you know, what value you bring to the organization and making sure you're focusing on the tasks they hired you to do it is a really smart way to. Understand what you shouldn't say no to and what you should say yes to. And then two, there's looking at where the time goes. And I think a lot of times, like with work, for example, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of meetings. So to get strategy execution done, you need to find ways to minimize both of those. <laughs> a lot of people come in and, you know, they're busy, they're busy, they're busy, and, and the day they look around and nothing got accomplished. Now there's just more emails than ever before.
0: That's very true. And you can spend all day being busy and achieving nothing very, very easily. And we've all had days like that. No matter how good we are at actually getting stuff done, we've all had days where we've, we've been busy and achieved nothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I've seen it so many different places, but <laughs> you need to be conscious about how your day is going to look and how it's going to work out and what you're going to want to get done in the day. Another thing that I added to the book was the the use of good estimates on how long things take because you me everyone we have a tendency to underestimate how little time something will take or how little it'll cost so you want to have a methodology to to work with different people to arrive at the best estimate you know you're not, you're not going to be exact but putting some thought into the into the estimates for how long A B and C will take is really going to be helpful because if you don't, then you get bogged down, and then you're further and further, and further behind, and before long, you're, it's almost un, unrecoverable.
0: Yeah, and it's not just unrecoverable from the point of view of look all the extra effort we've now got to find to put into this, but it's it's the psychological bit of that that oh, I haven't. Got, I said this would take two weeks. I've got halfway through it. Okay, three weeks on. Oh, I'm still nowhere near this. I'm starting to get really depressed about this. I'm losing interest in this because I'm nowhere near accomplishing a milestone. And that, your mental position towards it starts really going downhill. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Estimate the right time and the right cost. If you're optimistic, only put two weeks in a plan when it actually takes four. The only person you're doing a disservice to is yourself.
1: Yeah, definitely demoralizing. And it shows... Right. If we can't get the most basic elements of planning right, then there's going to be doubt on the strategy. On the topic of time, I also think it's important on the part of executives to get that sense of urgency going to help people realize this is not just another flavor of the month initiative. This is, this is our lifeblood. If we do this, we'll all succeed. We'll all benefit in some way. So organizations need to get people to understand what the strategy is, get them excited for it, get them moving, you know, um, you can feel that sense of urgency in the organization to have it and it's it's contagious, right? It's electric.
0: Yeah. And I think something in there and that you talk about it in the book is it's it's bottom up, not top down. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Especially with the planning piece. So once executives are work on the strategy, they want you have to bring in people, the line the line managers, the supervisors, the directors, to say, is this realistic or not? Because if executives are designing the timelines There's so much they could not possibly know, and you're creating unrealistic expectations right off the bat. And that's a that's one of the main reasons that these these things go off the rails so often.
0: And certainly, my experience is that if you start designing something, sitting in ivory towers of senior managers, it doesn't work because they don't know what the real problems are, and you certainly don't have the people at the the coal face, as it were, bought in. You've got to go out and you've got to talk to the people that are in the detail to tell you what the problems are. And those people will quite often know what the solutions are as well. And if you get them involved in designing the solution, designing what the future looks like, well, they're bought in and they'll be keen to execute.
1: Exactly. And that kind of takes me to the next point, where throughout the book I mention the importance of defining who has to do what and by when. But if you notice, I don't say how. You should never dictate to the people who best know how to do the work, how they're going to do it, right? How could a CEO possibly tell me how to do my job better than I can? So you want to utilize the power of people and to have them be able to give their input into how things get done. So if you define what good looks like, what it should look like when you're finished, they have the, the flexibility and To think problems through, to work through obstacles without having the back and forth or being overly constrained. And one of the really fascinating pieces of research I bring into this topic was uh, the success of Napoleon and his army in Europe. While other armies were very general heavy, and they soldiers could not make any moves without the general first, you know, telling them what to do. Napoleon's army would actually—they were led by the men. They were told, "When you hear the, the sound of firing." Everyone go that direction and we'll figure it out later. And that's kind of how they conquered Europe. Um, they trusted the people to do the job, to be empowered, to take action rather than waiting for the people at the top to tell them what to do, how to do it, and when to do it.
0: And the book as well, you get another war story. It's about the American Civil War, about how that the, the, the Civil War could have been over in a couple of days.
1: Yes, yes. I'm a big, uh, Civil War buff and the first battle of Bull Run is where um, the General Beauregard had written out overly complicated plans detailing exactly what unit needs to be next to another unit by what time. And what happened is different sub-generals got different sets of instructions, or no instructions at all, or he changed the instructions uh, midway through. So it was almost a calamity. He trusted his sub generals to go to the right place, to put their men in the best location, and to be flexible, he tried to over-control the battle. It almost was a complete rout, but at the last minute, some reinforcements came in, and the men stood their ground for a cause they believed in, and the rest is history. But it could have been over much quicker due to the top general telling the people who know how to do the job best how to do their job.
0: Yeah. I suppose coming down into getting the strategy done, looking at the plan, if you've got this mapped out in a whole load of detail, and from top down you're telling people to do certain things at certain times and how to do it, that's fine until something doesn't work. Like in in the battle, a unit has been put in a certain position, it becomes obvious very quickly that that unit's in the wrong position oh, where's the detailed instruction now about where we should be? <laughs> no? yeah. It removes all of that thinking on your feet piece. Yeah, that's key. The
1: initiative, the flexibility. You want to find ways to have plans. You need a plan, you need milestones, but flexibility is key. And getting that bottom-up input is critical.
0: And I think that's absolutely right, But if you're controlling this, you're looking at We've got to get to these milestones by these dates. How we get there, in some ways, doesn't really matter. The milestones are the guide that says, are we on track? Aren't we on track? Okay, we're not on track. Let's go and have a talk about this and work out, is there a different way we can do this? Or what's the problem? What have we got to unblock? Going and micromanaging the tasks isn't going to get you anywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, you know, if you're looking at a brick wall and your commander's telling you to go at that brick wall, it's impossible, but if you have the option, the flexibility to go under it, around it, or over it, that just adds so much to an organization. Because if you know, you're sitting there looking at a brick wall right in front of you, you're thinking, "What are we doing? You know, how are these people leaving the organization? You know, why am I going to stay here?" And people want to be empowered, and that's a big part to you know making sure people stay with an organization and do their best work. So. We've got
0: our strategic objectives. We've got a whole series of initiatives, and we've got some milestones in each of those initiatives. So we've got a good idea of where we're going then. And Mm -hmm. below those initiatives, we're empowering people to do stuff, get things done that need to be done. So one way we can measure how we're doing is is measuring progress against those milestones and ticking the box. But then there's that whole topic of KPIs. KPIs and measuring stuff. Yes. How do you, you feel that fits into, into getting the strategy done? You can
1: you can spend your whole life studying good KPIs and why KPIs go awry, but you, you're right. You definitely need them, and you need to define the few metrics that matter. I'm sure everyone's seen a dashboard uh, lit up in different colors with a metric with everything. But if you measure everything, then you measure nothing, right?
0: I totally, totally agree.
1: And there's also the part where you want to get the incentive structures correct. In my book, I bring in another piece of research about the Hanoi uh, Rat Massacre. So this is a story where when the French were overseeing uh, Vietnam, they realized there's a whole bunch of rats running around the city. And they decided to put an incentive structure into place. So they want to hire some mercenaries to go out, kill the rats, bring us a whole rat. We'll pay you, you know, X amount of money. So this went on for a few months and, you know, there's only small debt in the rat population. So the bureaucrats think, you know, we need a better way to do this. You know, and actually we don't like counting whole dead rats. What do we do do with these rats? Just bring us the tail. And then they also open the program up to the entire population. So before you could barely blink, tons of people were bringing rat tails to the government to get paid. So, you know, the government's thinking this is working so well. But then they start to look around and think, wait, now there's more rats than ever. How is this possible? So then they did an investigation and they found that people were breeding rats, chopping off their tails, and letting them go to make more rats because the incentive structure was so um, misaligned. So the city was full of tailless rats. Uh, the problem wasn't solved. And it was just a big headache. So I think that's a great story. on setting incentives that achieve the goal to get people act in the right way and to help an an organization achieve a strategy
0: i've heard a a train of thought that says never associate kpis and rewards otherwise you're going to get the wrong behavior exactly we want to hit this kpi for a reason in the case of the rats well we, we we need a we're getting money for rats' tails. Right. So what do we need? We we need an infinite supply of rats' tails to get money. Actually, no. The objective is exactly the opposite. We want zero rats. There's are going to be zero rats' tails. <laughs> yeah, so there's a few key principles that, you know, you want to stick with
1: when you design your metrics. For short, you want them to be smart, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and measurable. Uh, that's always a good one to keep in mind. And um like I said, you need to find a few things that are going to either be green or red to indicate, is your progress on track to where it should be or not? And then you can, if not, okay, figure out quickly why and then get it back on track. Because if you have too many metrics, no one's paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, people are probably losing more time just keeping these metrics updated. <laughs> rather than doing the job. That's right. right.
0: And I, I'm thinking back to to when we've done a say, scorecard exercise. One of the things we do in getting from a long list of things we could potentially measure to a short list is if I had a a 3x3 matrix on the wall, and all these metrics on post-it notes. Okay, on the vertical axis, there's influence. okay, High, medium, or low. If we're measuring this, can we actually influence whether this is the 1, 5, 10, can we move the lever to move the number? And the other ac- axis, high, medium, low, impact, which basically says if this is currently 5 and we move the measure to 10, does it actually make any difference?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's an excellent way to think about it.
0: Yeah, so impact and influence. Can we impact it? If we impact it, does it actually get us any closer to the the real target we're going for?
1: Absolutely. And then as I continue to write the book, I realize there's a few more key topics that we have to get right in the organization. And those are the first ones communicating, right? Communicating for effectiveness. So what does that mean? Like we talked about, it's defining a way to tell people who has to do what and by when and then to also make sure that when you are communicating, the message is clear and that you're using the right medium to get your message message across, right? Today we have Zoom, we have uh, in-person meetings, we have phone calls, text, uh, carrier pigeons if you're creative. But if you don't understand what the right mode is to get your message to the right person or group of people, then it's going to get lost. And then if people... Don't understand the, the strategy because of miscommunication, or they don't understand who has to do what by when through miscommunication. That's another reason that the strategy execution gap gets wider and wider.
0: Yeah, and I've been doing a series in in GrowCFO for for our future finance functions event that takes place once a month and talking, not necessarily strategy, but we've been talking how do you do finance transformation, how do you do change? And We've talked about communication—an awful lot in it—and said, so, you, know, "You communicate. When you've communicated, communicate again. When you've communicated again, communicate again. And when you think you've done enough communication, well, actually you haven't, communicate again, and use every channel that's available to you." And uh, the sessions that I've run in the last couple of months—the first one—we were talking about the importance of quick wins. Mm-hmm. And to actually, as we record this today, I delivered the next one, which is about sort of building momentum on the back of those quick wins.
1: Absolutely. And like
0: communication came up yet again because you have a quick win. And actually, there's a subconscious tendency of people to relax after that. Oh, we're going to celebrate. Oh, we've done this great thing. Well, no, actually, no, you've only done 5% of the overall change. Mm-hmm. So you've got to get in there and and really, really communicate the vision all over again and say, great, guys, we're 5% down the road, now, but this is what we're really going for. Look, come on, we've got to get moving now. We've proved we can do this stuff now. Let's go for the next one.
1: Yeah, and I think another great point in communication is to make sure that you're communicating efficiently and effectively. How many times have we seen email chains that never end? I worked at a company before where everyone was hitting. Reply all, all day. No work got done. This thing spiraled out of control. So one of the ideas I proposed for better communication is process-centric communication. And that comes from uh, Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, where if someone sends you an email, you want to try and set it your response back in a way so you're not playing um, tennis back and forth through 10 different emails. If you can get done in two or three emails versus 10, that's a better use of everyone's time. And it's clear and concise.
0: Absolutely. And I'd say on top of that, really think about who you copy in on that email. Oh yes. There's a tendency for almost to have a an audit trail to protect your own backside. And copy in all sorts of people you think you might want to know what's in the email. Well no. Who really needs to know about this? do they need to know about it just as a piece of information or do they need to give an opinion? And really, really think about that as you are putting your emails together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of articles that talk about that and the importance of only having the people who need to be in the room or in the communication um, to be there. You don't need to have a meeting with 10 people who decide and 30 who watch because that just creates more complexity and more time lost. And it's just not great. That's another step wider for the strategy execution gap.
0: We've talked about breaking things down to the milestone plans. We've talked about making sure the right people are involved in deciding how you're going to do it. We've Mm -hmm. talked about measuring progress, but through looking at progress against the milestones, looking at KPIs. We've talked about communication. Anything else we should be aware of, Then,
1: Yeah, I think culture. We hear about culture, but culture is a key piece to having a great organization that can execute a strategy. Because when you think about it, strategy execution is not a one-time event. It's a discipline. And you need to build that discipline into your organization, into your culture, so that each time you get better, people don't forget uh, the lessons they've learned, and that people can work together in the right ways to want to see these things succeed. Uh, there's a lot of ways that culture's I think there's the saying, was a culture, each strategy for breakfast. So if you don't have the right culture and the right mindset, you've the best strategy in the world, but the people aren't going to budge and make it happen, or they're going to try and kill your plan, you'll never execute it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. If you've got the wrong culture, changing it's not going to be easy, is it?
1: Oh, it is not. That's one of the things you want to try and get done early. And like I said, just trying to change a built culture over a long time. It's tough. It's doable, but extremely difficult. And and then in the book, I offer up a few different ways that you can, you can think about culture and to bring the right ideas into your organization. So for example, I discuss Amazon and two different things that Amazon does. One is that they have a, a culture and a way of working where for meetings, the meetings can only be big enough to feed the people in it with two pizzas, right? So you're not going to have a room full of people and you're not going to have two people. So if the room can be fed by two pizzas, that's the right size. And then the other thing that I really like that Amazon has built into their culture is that when you want to propose an idea, you have to write up a multi-page thesis, the idea, why it makes sense, you know, and to really think through the idea you're proposing in the organization because how many times have we been to meetings and people just throw in half-baked ideas or they just want to talk without an objective but if you have some requirement in your organization's culture where if you're going to bring things forth that's great but they have to be really well structured i think that's that's a great way to ensure that only the best ideas come out and the ones that come out are practical i love both of those
0: the pizza idea is, that I guess, you don't need so many people in the room that you're never going to get to a solution. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you don't want so few so that you haven't got the people with the right knowledge in the room to be able to get you to the solution. Yeah. I guess that's that's really what's behind the get the right number in there.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And, does that I mean- also mean that every meeting is going to be a working lunch?
1: <laughs> uh, That's one one of my uh, career goals. That's one of the things I want to see happen. (laughs) And then the final piece, I think, in culture is that you need, you need to have an environment where people feel comfortable disagreeing. If you have a strategy and everyone's a yes man, you don't, (laughs) they'll say yes to everything. They're not going to challenge you. They're not going to refine the strategy or the approach or the plan or the execution. And things are just going to fall apart. You know, you're, you're going to chase down every one of these people saying, you said yes to this. What happened? And then you gotta go to the next one. It's like the game of whack-a-mole, right? So you want people who are, are going to say, this is a shit plan. You know, it's a shit approach. <laughs> if we're going to get shit done, why don't we do X, Y, and Z instead of this? You don't want people who are quiet and just going to go along for the ride. You want people who are going to want to see this thing come to fruition. So I think that's important.
0: I think that's a key role of the CFO, actually. two things that you should certainly be bringing to the table as CFO and looking at strategy in the early stages are, what are the alternative ways of doing this? Is there a way that might take less resource and produce more value? Is there a way of doing this that might have less risk attached to it? What are the alternative ways of getting to the goal that we want and which is best? Which is a little bit different than the CFO just challenging strategy and being seen as well, Dr. No effectively. Mm-hmm. It's got to be positive. It's got to be constructive, but challenge to make sure that what we're talking about is, is practical, the risk is manageable, and it will add the amount of value that we want. To be. At the end of the day, resources are limited. You've yep. got to put resources in the, in the place that they give you biggest value out.
1: Yeah. Those are all
0: key points.
1: If you don't have those, like I said, the the gap remains uh, uncrossable.
0: Absolutely. So, Ben, that has been an absolute fantastic counter-through getting shit done. And I'll put a link to the book in the show notes and link back to Ben's details and everything else that he's done as well. But the no-nonsense framework for closing the strategy execution gap. I think we've well and truly covered that properly today, Ben. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me and letting me share it with your audience. I think this is going to be one of the hot issues that we're going to see become more and more important in the next few years. And I think we're just at the beginning of really great ideas and frameworks coming out. So, you know, we need more people focused on strategy execution Instead of just believing strategies for the executives and executions for everyone else to sort of figure out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do have one very, very last question for you? What do you think the CFO's role in strategy should be?
1: CFO's role in strategy should be to validate that the plan has the resources it needs, that the, that any investments that are required are feasible and to also create some sort of incentive structure for people and for leaders where it is, they hit these milestones or they achieve the strategy and they execute it. There's a reward. So I think if you can, a CFO does those three things, it goes a long
0: way. I also think in terms of getting shit done, you know, the CFO has those disciplines of measuring things, reporting things on a regular drumbeat. That's, mm-hmm. I do think an awful lot of the execution and making sure the execution is happening should be sitting with the CFO as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And definitely, like you said, the metrics, they should big say the metrics and how they're getting, um, how the metrics are getting put together and shared throughout the organization. A lot of times, you know, you'll see metrics, but they won't be, they won't cut across all the right areas of an organization. They might be too operational focused or too finance focused so a CFO in their position needs to work with all the leaders to get the balanced metrics, measuring the right things. And they need to ensure that there's a process to ensure that they're updated accurately and um, routinely, right? If you just find out now what happened last month, what good is that?
0: Exactly. Like driving a car looking through the rear view mirror. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Ben, on those closing thoughts of the CFO's role and strategy, that has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you again for being this week's guest on the Go CFO show.
1: I really appreciate it, Kevin.